HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Southern Farm and Garden, a beautiful handcrafted agricultural journal. Purchase a copy today at southernfarmandgarden.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. This is the last show of Season 9 of Feast Your Ears. We're going to take a few weeks off. We'll be returning in September. I've had the pleasure of interviewing over 100 fascinating people over the past nine seasons, and I'd love to interview an astronaut, a submarine cook, a Formula One driver, and anyone else who you think would make a good guest. If you know anyone who might be a good fit please get in touch. All of my previous episodes can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org, along with the 35 other weekly shows we produce here out of our studios in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. Today's theme, the happiest meat in the land. We all like to feel good about the sometimes darker sides of the food industry. Animals must give their lives for us to eat meat. Someone needs to pick those carrots and lettuce and coffee. Most of the world is pretty disconnected from these activities, and we consume the products and go about our days. The reality is often hard to comprehend when we're gathered with family and friends to eat a carefully prepared steak or a great summer salad. We should all take a look at where our food comes from, at least sometimes, and that can start with visiting farms or buying from people who we trust and who visit those farms. Dan Honig at Happy Valley Meat is one of those people. Since 2013, he's been sourcing meat with a mission to forge a direct connection between chefs and farmers to improve the lives of the people and animals that feed us. I think this is one of the most important things we can strive for in the modern age. As people have become more and more disconnected from their food and from other people, the more we can do to reconnect and at the very least start to understand that all our actions are connected, all the better. It really is about the people and the animals and the land and the air and the water this planet has sustained life for millions of years, and I, for one, hope that it can sustain it for a few million more. But we have to take an active role in that and do the hard work of understanding what our choices mean to others. We can't all live a perfect life, but let's not give up the good in search of the perfect. 
I hope you enjoy my interview with Dan, which I recorded a couple weeks ago. So tune in. Enjoy. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Dan, for joining me today. My guest today is Dan Honig, who is the uh, owner and I don't know what your official title is at Happy Valley Meat. I think my official title is just owner. All right. Owner of Happy Valley Meat Company. Um, so what is Happy Valley Meat? Happy Valley is an alternative meat system. We really focus on is animal welfare and just, you know, it sucks to be a farmer and it sucks to be an animal in a commodity system and we aim to make that better. Right now, what we're doing is we're connecting uh, restaurants and fast casuals with small farms. We break the animals into different cuts and sell them. So that, that's what Happy Valley is um, in its kind of most general form. And sure. then the specific problem we're answering is just animals are, particularly beef animals, are huge. Right. The way a farmer wants to sell is a farmer wants to sell an entire beef animal. It's going to weigh 800 pound carcass. You're going to have 32 different cuts, of which 40% is going to be ground beef. And they just, the way the commodity system works is you just sell that and you're done, the whole animal, and you get paid and you're done. The way the and it becomes the processor's problem of what they make into ground beef and sell, where that goes, where the bones go, where the fat goes, and where the prime, like prime exactly. meat goes. Exactly. The processor figures out where everything goes. And, and in fact, actually, processors take pre orders. So they're killing to pre-order. Um, whereas the buyers, all the buyers have gotten used to just buying exactly what they want. Sure. And this is what causes that big problem to deal with a small farm and a restaurant. is because you can imagine being a restaurant that goes through six animals worth of New York strips a week. And you say to a farmer, I'd like six animals worth of New York strips. Right. He's like, what am I supposed to do with all this other stuff? Yep. And that's where we come in is, is we play the balancing game. So you guys are, are, are in between... Uh, the farms and and the and the restaurants and and at this point the restaurant is is your end user right exactly uh, I like to think of us you know we exist for a producer side problem more than a consumer side problem so right we exist to make lives better for the people and animals that feed us and we offer this third alternative which farmers typically can go to a farmers market or they can go to commodity and both have their problems for the commodity you don't know your price can you imagine doing anything for and say for beef, two years, two and a half years, and not knowing how much you're going to get paid at the end of it. Right, you've, like, had, to, you had, to, you've had to house this animal, you've had to keep it healthy, you've had to feed it, you've had to clean it, you've had to, you know, and you may have formed some kind of relationship with it too. Exactly. Right? And then you have no idea whether it's not, what you get out at the end is going to pay for it at all. Right, right? it all depends on how our trade deals are working. Right? Like right now, there's like $2.1 billion of meat backed up, given like the Trump regulations. You couldn't have predicted that like two years ago. Sure. And so you got into the beef, and you're like, beef is going to be great. And all of a sudden, Trump starts like, giving everyone the middle finger, and now beef prices go through the floor. And you're like, yep. all right, well, I guess I'm going to lose money for the next two years. And, right. Um, it's pretty rough to be a farmer. And then on the farmer's market, you have to inventory, you have to like market, you have to then go and speak to people, you have to be places, you have to balance your whole carcass. And where are you supposed to farm in all that time? Yeah. And we offer the third where we buy like the commodity, but we keep the story intact. We have everyone who can you know, tell where the, the meat comes from, but farmers know how much ahead of time they can expect to get for the end. Yeah. And you've been doing this now for five years, is that right? Uh, 2013, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Um, how did you get into the meat business? Like, were you on the farming end or on the on the chef end and saw this as a, as a niche? Yeah, I was on neither end. <laughs> I, um, I can't, I grew up in, I grew up in central New Jersey. We didn't really talk about food other than, you know, we'd have all our holiday foods growing up in a New York Jewish family, but where food came from wasn't ever a part of the conversation. 
It wasn't until I, I went to college and I studied philosophy, I took this course on animals, ethics, and the environment, that I read my first book, which is Eating Animals by Jonathan Steffenford, and it just was like, whoa, something's not right with this. It didn't seem like quite, the, you know, the most sound philosophy, but it, it definitely opened my world to, wow, I never think about this huge thing that I do on a daily basis, where right. we're killing animals and we're eating them, and there are people who have to are involved in making that system work. So at that point, I then read everything I could on, you know, I read uh, Singer and Reagan, and, you know, I read anything I could find on farming and animals, and then I went, started working with Heritage Foods USA, Heritage Radio Network. Yep. <laughs> And I ran sales and operations there. I hung out with farms. I went to slaughterhouses, and I really got a good sense of what it was like to raise animals. And I came to the conclusion: it's not wrong to kill an animal, but we owe them a good life. Right. And and you know, so philosophy is how I how I got into meat in the first place. Sure. And yeah. I, you know, I just kind of learned through, through heritage. It stands. I call them translator roles. Heritage really stands in a translator role where heritage. I, I got to learn to speak farmer. I got to learn to speak butcher. And I got to learn to speak. Um, chef and, and you know being able to communicate for people and help them speak with each other you know, that's that's how you make change yeah uh, are you then I mean so so happy Valley meat then is is a lot of logistics right it's a yeah. lot of how do you move this 800 pound animal from one place to the other and take it apart and distribute that right yeah it's a lot of logistics a lot of uh, you know, I was told pretty early on that when you're a distributor you essentially are a bank for people who don't go to the bank to get money <laughs> and, and that is uh, you know so our job is really co coordinating everything making sure it works smooth um, and then make pe making sure people on all ends are happy yeah. so part of that is getting things to arrive on time and the other part of it is getting checks to arrive on time sure. um, yeah how much time do you spend I mean it, it, I feel like it sounds like an, a sort of evil word but it's not, I don't mean it that way auditing the farmers that you're working with. I mean, so you know, you and I had had a conversation a few weeks ago about what just happened with See the Table, mm -hmm. about some big issues and holes that were kind of poked in their philosophy, uh, yeah. as it were. Um, and you know, is that a concern for you, given the, the space that you're operating in? Yeah. So lucky for us, meat is a lot more transparent uh, under USDA purview, and um, we've developed really great relationships. And it takes for us fewer farmers than it does fishermen. Yeah. Plus, like they're they're basically tied to their land. Uh, not to say that there aren't concerns. And one of the main things that we've done, again, welfare is our entire reason for existence. So, farmer and animal welfare is, is like the lens in which we look at the world. So, a couple of years ago, we brought on this woman, Megan Dietz, and Megan met us through the ASPCA. And the whole point, she came on to initially do an internal evaluation of what it looks like to get all of our farms audited. And then she built with the ASPCA, but Mega did most of the heavy lifting, built an internal um, welfare plan, which is available on our website that says, like, this is how every animal is raised. And then we have the paperwork, and we, have, we basically give farmers the paperwork to do, and then we go out and do audits. And this happens about once a year. On top of which, we're starting to partner with third-party auditors, so Certified Humane, Animal Welfare Approved, and GAP, uh, Global Animal Partnership. And, and these partners also help to hold farms accountable. So uh, given all those, it's always a big fear, like not knowing, but given the relationships that we have are a lot more direct than buying from a dock, it's buying from boats, right? Uh, and it's a lot harder to swap cuts of an animal. So, sure. <laughs> you know, like, like we were talking about this, like if an animal comes in, we know exactly how many cuts come off an animal. 
can't just magically get four more New York strips or four more ribeyes. <laughs> right, right. Or, or less. Or less. I mean, right, the light, you know. I mean, they can cut it and turn it into trim by sure. accident. But, you know, we're aware of, like, ever if the, if anything is missing, we're like, yeah. what's happening? And none of our partners, since, like, the motivation is, you know, I guess there's always motivation to make more money, but you just... We'd have to do like take one of your ribeyes back and give another, and it just wouldn't. Right, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It'd be very difficult. As you pointed out, you can't conjure more middles. Exactly. Right. Uh, So, are you then in a position through this to, you know, if I go and I eat, say, at All's Well, Mm -hmm. who I see as one of the restaurants, you know, here in Williamsburg that serves your meat, if I go to eat at All's Well, do they know which farm the meat that they're getting from you came from? Yeah, at this point, uh, we're able to still do that. How to scale that is one of the problems that we're facing with. Like, How do we figure out how to make sure to the farm? Because what we do is every piece of meat will have the name of the farm on it, on the package. Right. So also all I have to do is look at the label, and right now it'll say where it comes from. As we grow, one of the issues will be efficiency. And so if we bring, let's say, four different farms into the slaughterhouse, uh, and their packing, pack, the slaughterhouse will want to pack them all at once for us. Uh, so at this point, we've been able to say pack each one separately and keep the name on it. Sure. As we get larger and larger, being able to figure out how to how to best and most efficiently do that, it's kind of unclear how it works. One thing we could do is just always keep different farms and different lots and, yep. and have that work. So, but for the time being, every farm will have the every piece of meat will have name. the name of the farm on it. That's cool. That's. Uh, I mean, I think that. You know, we we exist in a in a moment, and I you know I've had a lot of this season. I've had a lot of different meat folk on. You know, I've talked to farmers, I've talked to butchers, I've talked to other distributors. But I think that really, as much information as people can get, not that they necessarily want it or will take advantage of it, but I think it's important to have it out there. We live in an infor- the information age, so to speak, and so I think having that available is really you know I commend you for that and for trying to figure out how you scale that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, I'm of the same opinion that I don't know what everyone's values are and I couldn't hope to have a product that hits everybody's values perfectly. But whatever they are, I hope if you care about something, I give you enough information to figure out if you care about my product. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that, you know, I think that, and the transparency I think is super valuable, especially I mean there are um, there are a lot of places I think that are jumping on the bandwagon for lack of a better way to describe it. Mm-hmm of trying to present their meat and sourcing, not just meat, produce, fish, all these things, mm-hmm. in a better light than they might actually be. Um, or, you know, I, I guess I, I feel like it's a little bit nefarious. Um, there happens to be a large grocery chain owned by a large internet company uh, who's a big sponsor of Heritage Radio Network uh, that, I, you know, I don't personally agree with the way that they have their meat labeled mm-hmm. in their cases. Um, because I find that it really, you know, it, it is more of a psychological ploy than actually providing information. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the, the numbering system yeah. in use at the large retailer I'm referring to. Yeah, so that's one of the ones that we've looked at as well. Um, and it's kind of like how easily do you make it, like what each of these numbers mean. And, yeah. and, and that's, I think, very difficult. But I do think, you know, like you said, the two biggest problems that I see facing the food industry, or at least particularly... Um, people trying to do sustainable food is one is the, the I guess access problem like you know luxury good ethical goods are luxury goods and who's allowed to afford that and that's quite difficult like how do you overcome that and the other really big problem is greenwashing you know, yeah. I mean, when you look at really amazing speakers and amazing leaders 
they have right emotional calls like I have a dream like I believe in equality and that's really easy to figure find your way into a dream of equality but then when you look at food and everyone's like we think sustainable welfare animal like green and you're just like well that's like broad enough to get everyone excited but not specific enough and you get specific and people just zone out okay. and so you have all these people where basically if you look at the industry almost everyone's saying the same thing regardless of how they're doing it they're all just saying it the same way and it's created a ton of consumer confusion and like how do you communicate if we're saying happy valley like where you should eat our meat there's like normative force even to eat our meat sure how do we communicate that when everyone else is saying like the exact same thing yeah absolutely i mean i i also you know i i think there's a there's a or has been to a certain extent and i have fallen prey to this myself a presentation that eating ethically which is something that you know i obviously have that's valuable to me i mean i host a podcast on you know, a food radio network. Um, but it sometimes is hard to do that all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I also sometimes feel like I fail at that, which is not, you know, like it's not helpful for me to be in a position where I feel like I screwed it up if I don't buy the best produce because my kid wants to eat a banana or an apple right that moment. Yeah. And again, it, I think it varies amongst different purchasing categories. For me, I'm mostly a vegetarian. I got into meat as a strict vegetarian. I stayed vegetarian for most of the time. I even ran a butcher shop as a vegetarian for a year. I went and hung out in slaughterhouses as a vegetarian. Uh, and now we'll, we'll occasionally eat meat. But for me, meat is guilty until proven innocent. Like I, I am, I guess, like de facto a vegetarian because I figure, you know, it is a system of, of mass pain and torture that I don't want to contribute to. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think it's hard, like, even figuring out, like, you can, you know, greenhouse tomatoes, like, flowing around the world, like, could be a system of mass torture if you can't sure. totally trace it back. Yeah. Um, I think it's just really murky and it's hard to figure out. Um, yeah, trying to eat as perfect as you can, knowing that we're not perfect. Like, right. we're not perfect animals. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about the Meatless Monday movement? Um, honestly, I think you mentioned it the other day and I haven't given much thought to Meatless Monday. I know, um, you're saying like people who eat Meatless Monday aren't the ones who are consuming a huge amount of proteins in the first place or aren't right. consuming I mean, like I, two yeah. hamburgers a day or two hamburgers per meal. Um, yeah, my, my main thing, you know, in the same line is to say like people are not going to stop eating meat. And so whether, I hope people eat less meat. And that's yeah. the idea, like, we're trying to even blend mushrooms into hamburgers to reduce the amount of meat that people are eating. So how do you most affect that change? I, I think there's a lot of studies out there saying, like, telling consumers how good something is or consumer education isn't even the best way to get change. There's a lot of nudging that needs to go on where you're telling people, like, you're just kind of, like, making it easy for them to do things. I think, like, if you take a mirror and put it behind a table and you have... Uh, donuts on one end and fruit on the other. If the mirror is there, more people it is statistically significant that more people will eat the fruit than if you take the mirror away. The same people will eat more donuts. And so, I think you know, mushroom burgers and just putting that in like to people's hands is another way to do it. Yeah. Um, asking people who like obviously, if you consider yourself somebody who wants to eat meat with every meal, meatless Monday isn't going to really impact you. Sure. I mean, yeah, the, the, what I was, I was referencing a study that I had heard that was done that was looking at statistically how much effect 
uh, Meatless Monday had on decreasing greenhouse gases. And essentially what the conclusion of the study was, was that, you know, the people who are likely to engage in something like Meatless Monday are already not huge consumers of meat. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it really is the, you know, it is the people who are consuming the most amount of meat. If they reduce to consuming what is an average amount of meat, that that would really have a much larger, that would move the needle much further Mm -hmm. than people who are probably at average or below average cutting out a day of eating meat. And that makes a lot of sense. Uh, one of the studies that we like to quote for the mushroom product is if the entirety of the U.S. switched one-third of their hamburger meat to mushrooms, it would be the equivalent of taking two million cars off the road and greenhouse gas emissions a year. And, like, that's kind of staggering. Like, if yeah. everybody was able to reduce by one-third, just, you know, were you able to eat, like, mushroom burgers, would scratch that same itch. Yeah. Maybe- so- Tell me about your mushroom burgers. I'm super interested in them. I mean, I I, I love mushrooms. Um, you know, I mean, I and I think it's a really, you know, I, there's lots of veggie burger products out there. I always used to joke. I when I was in college, I was sort of a de facto vegetarian vegan because I lived in a communal living situation with nine other people, and we bought all our food and cooked all our food together. And I think eight of those people were vegetarians. Mm-hmm. So I was a de facto vegetarian, but I also was one of the only people who cooked. So I cooked a lot of vegetarian food and, you know, I remember there were, there also were always like frozen veggie burgers Mm -hmm. in the freezer and there was a lot of like fake meat products around and I always felt like those things were so weird because I felt like nobody's trying to like, I'm not going to try and make a carrot out of beef. Right. So why am I trying to make beef out of a carrot, right? Like it's a, to me, that's a really weird conversion, but I love the idea of using both and putting those things together. Yeah. And so I think like a lot of people like me are vegetarians because not because the flavor is terrible, but just because, right. I think there's three main reasons to be a vegetarian. You have your health reasons, you have your ethical reasons, and then you have your environmental reasons. And any one of them is good enough, but probably wouldn't get you to never having to eat meat, but all three together can keep you away from meat in its sure. entirety. Um, the, way, the way the mushroom product works is we have a couple different varieties of it. One variety is the idea is to use mushrooms just as a filler. So the mushrooms don't add any flavor. Uh, there are some extra glutamates, so you do get a little bit more pronounced beefiness. Um, but the real idea is to just have the same texture and the same flavor as a 100% beef burger. But just with a lower amount of beef. With one-third less the beef. Got it. And you can even make it leaner. And so we're going sure. after hospitals and schools yeah. because we're able to get that, that nutritional profile that they're looking for. I mean, you're probably also getting even better nutritional profile. There's lots and lots of uh, trace minerals in mushrooms. Mm-hmm. There's vitamin D. I mean, yep. mushrooms are the only non-meat source. Of vitamin D, mm-hmm. so I think that I mean that that to me is interesting, just also from a health standpoint. Yeah, and you know one of the things that is most exciting in mushrooms, you know, we, I talked a little bit about how I think there's the two main problems facing the food industry is its accessibility problem. Mushrooms are price stable and cheaper, and so now we can take the small farm, high welfare meat product. We're able to grind it with mushrooms, which are a lower price point, able to spread out that amount, and we can we can have a lower price point product, which makes this like what we're saying it's like ethical luxury product yeah. more accessible to more people right and that's a huge thing for us is to be able to not just exist at fine dining restaurants which have been our bread and butter so no knock to fine dining restaurants sure. <laughs> um, but I want everyone to be able to be part of Happy Valley and be part of changing the food system yeah. um, and so so that's the, you know one product is we, we basically we take the ugly mushrooms from the mushroom industry we're dealing with most of the mushrooms in the states are grown in Kennett Square which is southern Pennsylvania. 
the reason for that is just happenstance. There used to be the, the rose capital of the United States, and then the mushroom people came in and they took over the rose houses and they, they're like, oh, we could just fill these with manure and, and, and mushrooms. Yeah. And so all the infrastructure for mushrooms developed down there. And we're able to take, so I think the, the way it was explained to me by the mushroom growers was the way a mushroom company is evaluated amongst any other you know, person who's gonna accept their product is their eight ounce sliced mushroom. And that's the products they sell the most. That's how they get into to different stores, and, and that's the big thing. Oh, that's the way that the mushroom sales industry has developed in the grocery world, I guess. Yeah, consumers want the 8-ounce sliced pack of mushrooms. And so, you know, retail is a really finicky beast. And so if something's bruised or something looks weird or something's ugly in any way, even though it is totally fine and edible, it's not going to sell. So what the mushroom industry has done is they've started giving those mushrooms to us. So we're taking these perfectly good mushrooms, we're grinding them, we're brining them uh, to just like set the water and to set the color. And then we're grinding them in with the beef and then we're able to take these ugly mushrooms and turn them into beautiful patties. I mean, it, it, it sounds awesome. Where can people get them? I mean, are they available at retail anywhere or are they just going into food service at the moment? They're just going into food service at the moment. Um, we work with a distributor called The Common Market, and they're trying to get this into retailers. We're starting to talk to some retailers. If there's a retail that you know that you think should carry this, speak to speak to them and tell them, like, we're Happy Valley Meat Company. We're ready to deliver. <laughs> and do you do other retail cuts as well, or right now you're really just into, into restaurants? So we're into restaurants. We sell a little bit to uh, Mike's Organic and uh, Farm to People. And so we, can, we do have the ability. Uh, we don't really do direct-to-consumer unless you want to get 30 pounds of meat happily give you 30 pounds of I mean, there, you know, there are, I mean, if any, if there's anywhere that there is the customer who would buy 30 pounds of meat, I have to think it's someone who's <laughs> listening to Heritage Radio Network, so. Yeah. Um, and then, so that, that's, that's like, you know, one of our main mushroom products is this one where you have mushrooms as a filler. But there's another aspect of the mushroom product project where we're dehydrating the mushrooms a little bit and really trying to get that mushroom flavor to pop. And so you have that extra umami, you have this like very, I guess like, just like deep just like super umami burger um and that's what we do it's not as cheap because mushrooms aren't a filler they're actually an accent to the flavor uh and the idea is to create this beef and mushroom burger still getting to eat less meat so you you see the same uh, environmental impact and health impacts but what you don't see is the cost impact when you roast them this episode is brought to you by southern farm and garden a beautiful handcrafted agricultural journal Each issue features stories about food history, seasonal recipes, artisanal products, and the amazing people who bring it to your table. Packed with stunning photography, the content is fresh and educational. Southern Farm and Garden takes you behind the scenes to meet farmers, gardeners, wineries, chefs, and artists who are passionate about creating healthy, unique, and sustainable food and products that you can enjoy all year. Are you interested in eating healthier and learning more about where your food comes from and living a more connected life? Purchase a copy today at southernfarmandgarden.com. Foodtank.com named Southern Farm and Garden one of the top 20 magazines for people who eat, cook, and grow, praising it for connecting readers with the food, the farms, and the stories behind our food system. Subscribe today or find a retailer near you at southernfarmandgarden.com. Do you see other people following in your footsteps in the meat industry as far as a way to bring down the price of higher quality meat? I mean, as far as I'm aware, you're the first meat company to do this. 
to take something that used to be a 100% meat product and to turn it into something that is a different kind of product that allows for, you know, but it isn't using, you know, like crappy fillers the way that someone like a McDonald's might be. Yeah. Or mechanically separated meat, things like that. And the, there are a lot of companies starting to use mushrooms. And so Sonic is pretty, they, they made a big splash up putting like the, the Sonic mushroom burger. I haven't heard much about it since that point. A lot of universities are doing this. Yale, I think, has done this. Uh, the way that we're re- really using mushrooms is to bring the price down on small yeah. farm meats. And, and yep. that's the main, the main thing that we're using mushrooms to do on top of all the other benefits. It's like, why buy our mushroom burger versus somebody else's mushroom burgers? Because you get better meat yep. with the, those <laughs> yeah. mushrooms. So, um, yeah. Cool. What do you see as, like, what's the future for, for Happy Valley Meat? Like, are you, do you think that expansion into consumer goods, like, you know, retail ready for mm-hmm. grocery? Are you going into, you know, do you have other projects in the pipeline for using other kinds of meat and mushrooms or potentially other, like, mm-hmm. vegetable content? Mm-hmm. Uh, what, you know, what's what's on the horizon? Yeah, so it's funny enough, it's a, it's a hard question because our vision, our goal, right? Like, the reason why we exist is to create better lives for the people and animals that feed us. The way we do that is by creating an entirely new meat system, Yeah. right? So when you ask, when you look at Cargill or you look at Tyson or Purdue and you're like, how do those people work? Like they're in everything. Like they, they just like are, they have fingers in every single pot. Yeah. And if we want to affect change in the meat world, we can't just stay in fine dining. We can't just stay yeah. in like one place. And the way that, you know, I'm talking about how big these animals were, we have to find homes for every single piece of this meat and it doesn't all fit in fine dining. Yep. There, there are certain cuts of the animals like, you know, we want to make broth. We want to be able to work with people that make broth. Like we want to, right now we're, we're having a big focus on fast casuals. And so what we want to do is we're actually slicing and pre-marinating and, and getting to their recipes and their specs. Because if you're opening, right, if you're going to try to open 100 stores a year, 100 units a year, and you've got to train that labor, well, why train all those people? Train us. We'll be able to get you this small, this high-quality meat. But using sure. some of the amazing just technology, like you can, you can slice and cube and for just like vacuum tumble and so that you can get the flavor to fully penetrate. Um, and so the vision is to have a Cargill, but without all the, the values that Cargill left out. Right. And I think that's a really complicated vision to, to explain, but it's, we want to have our fingers in every pie. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I think, you know, taking, creating a new sort of meat economy, but basing it on what the larger economy is looking for, I think is super important mm-hmm. because I think that you you could probably chug along as a company that promotes the welfare of the animals and of the farmers and sells to fine dining, and you could probably make a company out of that, right? There are other companies that do something very similar, but I think that that is not you know that that affects a certain amount of change. But I definitely think that it's uh, it's important and valuable that you're looking kind of to the next level, like what what's the next opportunity beyond that yeah. and it sounds like the mushroom burger is really just the just the tip of the iceberg yeah you know we, we've started making just like meatballs and other things as well because the idea is to get people to eat less meat to get people to eat better meat and to get more people to eat less meat <laughs> <laughs> I guess, or to get more people to be able to eat less meat and then give them the option to eat less meat um and right now i was just i was looking at your site uh a little bit earlier so right now you're distributed. Most of the restaurants that are carrying your stuff are in the New York area. 
Um, you have a lot in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, a couple in Connecticut. Uh, but you've reached as far down as Washington D.C., as far west as Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do you do you expect national distribution at some point? Yeah, I'd love that. Uh, right now, we're focusing on the Northeast because that's just where our, all of our farms and all of our infrastructure is located. But uh, you know, one of the things that we've worked really hard for the past couple of years to do is to be able to create a replicatable model, and we've been able to do that. We work with four different plants right now, so if you work with Right, one. If you can work with two, then you can work with three and four and ten. Yeah. And we work with all small, small plants that are able to um, have their own, I guess, their own drive, their own, their own um, initiatives. But as long as there's a plant, we can then work with them. We can help giving them that stable income that they can count on, that they can grow. They then the, the slaughterhouse is the gateway to the farming community. So typically, what we'll do is we'll go into a slaughterhouse and say who's raising this type of meat or who's willing to raise this type of meat. And typically there are a lot of great farms out there that just don't have access to better markets. So they don't know what to do, so they sell these beautiful animals to the sale barn. They just go to the commodity sale right. barn. And so you have, you know, in one end a feedlot animal that runs through the pen, and another animal, an animal that was raised in the conditions that we all want animals to be raised for. They just don't know where to go and they don't want to sell at farmer's markets, so they just send them through. Um, so there are a lot of farms, I think, you know, I've been told, I think one of the highlights of my career was when a salty old farmer told me that we were the best deal in town. So. <laughs> I mean, you know, that really, you know, that, that sort of says it all, right? That's, that's I think what it says the, it all. That's what the goal is. Do you uh, have, you know, any systems in place for connecting the restaurants to the farms beyond them just knowing the name? Like, have you connected the people? Yeah, we, we do monthly farm trips, which you should come on. Love to. Um, about once a month. The next one is on August 22nd. And we try to do it once a month and really just to get people to see parts of the world that they haven't seen before. Uh, we do sometimes get farmers to come into the city. And so both farming and being in a restaurant are very place-based, kind of time-intensive, like fires all over the place industries. But typically we'll get a van, we'll corral a bunch of chefs to wake up at 6, to get into the van at 6 in the morning. They all fall asleep in the van. <laughs> we, we drive down and we go and we see usually um, a lamb farm, a beef farm, and a slaughterhouse. Sometimes we go when the slaughterhouse is actually slaughtering. Sometimes we don't. And, you know, the, the option is to see it. I remember when we first, one of the, the first slaughterhouse we started working with is Rising Spring Meat Company. And they're in Spring Mills, Pennsylvania, right near State College, dead center of the state. And before that, we got a list from PETA of all the different slaughterhouses in the Northeast, supposedly to protest or something of that nature. And we went and we visited them, and they, we got our phones confiscated, pretty pretty heavy security, and we show up at Rising Spring, and Jay, the owner, we're like, do you need our phones? He's like, why would I need your phones? We're like, yeah, why would you need our phones? Slide our phones back into our pocket. Um, and the idea is, we're doing what we're doing, and if people don't like it, they're not going to like it any less if they see it. Or sure. I guess you could see it have a visceral reaction. but. Yeah. It's still, it's open. Again, it's that idea we're talking about. If you have values and you want to know that your values are being upheld, we want to give you that option to see. If you're going to see somebody killing an animal and you're not going to eat meat anymore, well, that's probably a valuable lesson for you to learn. I mean, it's a good point. You know, I mean, I, I guess if you were to go to a slaughterhouse and they were to take your phone away, I mean, the USDA is supposed to, I mean, the USDA has an inspector there. Mm-hmm. So what does that say about the quality of the USDA, of the 
inspector and of the facility if they don't want you taking pictures of it, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I think it's more of this, like, this pretty big fear of just, like, how you can use, you know, you can cut a, a single clip to look like something that nobody would want to see. Yeah, of course. Um, any animal that's been killed and sold under the USDA stamp has had a USDA inspector watch it get killed. Yep, of course. Um, so I've had pretty good interaction with the USDA. Uh, the best conversations I've had have been actually on the kill floor. And then if you want to interview them for a radio show, they won't let you speak to the people on the floor. They make you speak to somebody in Washington who may never have even been on a kill floor. So you get vapid, unusable answers. Yeah. And then you're actually on the floor and they give you this like beautiful bounty of information. Sure. And you're like, oh, I wish I could really record that on the record. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and it is a, it's a real thing. I mean, taking an animal's life, whether that's fishing or, you know, poultry or all the way up to something like a beef animal, you know, is a, it's a real part of the food system. And I think that, you know, the more people know, the better, and the better they can make an educated decision. And I think ignoring it is not a good way to, 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 to have, it's not, a, it's, it is not a good way for us to move forward as a, as a society. Yeah, I can't think of any therapist that says ignore your problems and they'll go away. Like, no, <laughs> it's a really good point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Killing an animal—it's this interesting meeting of worlds, right? It's where an agricultural product is turned into like a recognizable food. Um, I have, again, I've been called repeatedly by everyone in my family and everyone on my friends list the worst vegetarian on the planet because I've done every aspect. The only one thing I have not done is uh, when an animal is killed you shackle uh, the hoof and then you winch it up so that you're able to um, like uh, exang like uh, yeah I guess exanguinate like to yep. draw the blood out um, I've done that but I haven't ever shackled an animal because I'm afraid of getting kicked but every other aspect of it like I've done from you know sticking to knocking to skinning to butchering to leading the animals into the pen like I've done all of that and it's this really weird feeling when you're on one side and you see yourself in mammals. Like, we see it. That's why yeah. I think it's a lot easier to eat fish or shrimp sure. or octopus, right? Octopi are really, really intelligent creatures. That but can, they are not humanoid. But they are not humanoid. <laughs> and they're not mammals, yeah. And, you know, you can look into the eye of an octopus and see nothing, whereas you look into the eye of a cow, especially of pigs, yeah. and you see yourself in them. Like, sure. you see curious animals. And so I remember being on one side of the, you know, on the, on the pens and saying, like, you know, Animal, like licked me on the elbow and like was curious about me. I was like, oh, I don't want you to die. I want you to live till you're 30 and die of liver failure. But then on the other side, it all of a sudden became like my job to dispatch that animal and to turn it into food. And you know, the kind of the feelings I guess that get driven. It's a very interesting. I don't know if you've ever experienced something similar where you have two very opposing emotions and just like I think that the stir to quickness that comes from a task to be done just kind of devoids you of that emotional impact that was out there. Um, in Eating Animals, John Stafford Fuller talks about uh, one of the slaughterhouses that I've spent most of my time called Paradise Locker Meats. Um, and he talks about how, you know, he paints a picture of how even the kill floor people like lament their job and they talk about not liking it, which is not the experience that I had with any of them. You know, I've had like very frank and like spent a lot of time out there. Like I've stayed out there. I was in like one of the owner of Paradise's like wedding. I was in the wedding party and uh, it's a job, you know, it's, a, yeah. it's, it's I think you know, there's a lot of repetitive motion damage, it can be hard, 
Um, but in terms of, especially in the smaller plants that I've worked with, I've never seen anybody really upset to be doing that job. Right. Which is kind of interesting because you, you know, you hear a lot of studies, so maybe there's something therapists can get out of people that a frank conversation wouldn't, which sounds right. But. Maybe, or, I mean, or maybe, you know, maybe working in a place where it is a part of a community because it sounds like that's a piece of it too is mm-hmm. that a lot of the smaller slaughterhouses really are a part of a community and we're you know we're not talking about these giant animal processing facilities which are more for lack of a better way to describe them like you know going down in a mine or mm-hmm. going onto you know on the, into a factory to do a dirty long hard job where people don't like it yeah I, you know i think the time it takes to do something as well so uh, in, in rising spring one of the people that i worked with a lot there uh, he worked in a much larger plant. And so large plants have learned how to kill efficiently and humanely. And they do, like, you know, a lot of Temple Dr. Grandin's work has, I think it's had huge effects because the simple thing is if you have an animal that is stressed, it's going to be worth less money because of the, you know, the, you know, the, the stress hormones will release and it'll actually taint the, the meat and have yeah. it be uh, shorter shelf life, denser. It's called dark cutting. Um, on beef and a pale cutting on, on pork. Um, so, but, you know, he worked in this larger plant and he had, I think it was 10 seconds. His job was to eviscerate. He had 10 seconds and it wasn't like 10 seconds if he took 11 seconds, the carcass was moving and it had to go to the next spot. And I've never done anything in my life in 10 seconds. That's yeah, that's a single, really... <laughs> single thing I could think of. And you have 10 seconds, he would do 200 a day, I think. And... Yeah. You know what those plants are really hard on is is the human body is right. the, is a human the human component of that yep. and it's one thing to like miss a rivet on like a chassis and have to like stop the line and go back it's another thing to like miss shooting an animal in the head correctly sure uh, because like, or to eviscerate wrongly and to slice into part of the you know part of the viscera that you're not supposed to right for instance you know yeah stomach acid or gallbladder things like that yeah it's um yeah, it's it's wild what it does to you. His wrist was fused to his forearm from years of repetitive motion. Wow. And so, yeah, they're his body. You know, those, they take a beating like all of them. Like they're it's a hard. I, I worked in the slaughterhouse for like a month, and by the end of it, I remember my hand was tingling. I came one day, I was like, "What's wrong with my hand?" And that same guy looks at me, and goes, "Well, that's a day of work, boy. <laughs> you finally did one." <laughs> um, and I'm like, "Does it ever come back? Will my hand ever stop tingling?" And I'm too soft for it. Like I, you know, like I've been there and I can see it, and I'm glad I know that I'm too soft for it. Yeah. But it's hard work. Yeah, absolutely. So when I asked you if there were any great stories that you thought would be good on Feast Your Ears, um, you mentioned that you almost died in a freezer full of turkeys. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about what happened. So when I worked for Heritage Foods. Um, one of the big things that Heritage does is they do this turkey project. Sure. Where I've, I've eaten many, many a Heritage <laughs> turkey in my life. Yeah, and so for those of you who don't know, um, Patrick and Heritage Foods work with Frank Reese and Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch. To I interviewed Frank on this very show. Oh, cool. Uh, I don't in my brain have the, the episode number, but you can look it up. Uh, <laughs> I interviewed Patrick and Frank last year. Um, and the idea is... There are all these breeds, and as commodity farms took over, they realized people like breast meat, so they bred birds with larger breast meat, and they're like, oh, but we don't want it to take this long, so they bred birds to grow quicker, and, and you know, basically they, re- they really messed with the genetics. Um, what Frank and Patrick want to preserve is the old world genetics that have better flavor, that have all this history, and that have healthier birds. And so I think it was originally part of the, 
the arc of taste from slow foods, and the idea was we need to preserve our culinary heritage. And let's get that, everyone really excited about these heritage breed birds. And so when I was at Heritage, one of my first jobs was to actually go out to Kansas and orchestrate. I think I was, I don't know, maybe I was 21 at the time, like orchestrate all these like tens of thousands of turkeys coming in. and. Um, and, and so like I was dreaming in inventory numbers because we were sold to the bird. I think what actually happened this year was the slaughterhouse where Frank got his bird slaughtered lost 5,000 birds. Wow. And oh they God. didn't know where it was. It turned up at the end of the year. Ugh. They were found as like cut up parts that they didn't realize that they're like, oh, here are all your birds. We actually like cut them up. But this was after Thanksgiving. <laughs> so just like <laughs> absurdity. But because they lost 5,000 birds... That means we had to stop taking sales. Everyone had to kind of stop, and like the numbers were sold to the right. Zero. It was so close, and yet, of course, you don't want to ruin Thanksgiving. You don't want to ruin Thanksgiving. <laughs> I had death threats when I was at Heritage from people on the phone, but, like, just because their bird was going to be an hour later than they anticipated. Yeah. Like you don't want to ruin anyone's Thanksgiving. And so it was like you know the the different categories of size, and like I would like go and dream, and I would like continuously be taking inventory. And my phone was maybe at eight percent battery, and I was using the flashlight to look in the very back of a freezer truck. This is maybe at you know, 9.30 at night in the middle of nowhere, Missouri. Then I'm looking for this pallet. I find the pallet, great success. My phone dies. Then the door to the front of the trailer closes and I hear it lock. And I'm like, oh no, and I can't make any calls. And I just run to the trailer. I start banging on it. I'm like, starting to think like, can I kick out the compressor? Like, right. how, oh like, my God. How, how am I gonna get out? Can I like huddle into the middle of one of these boxes and see if I can, you know, I think stay it's- warm the, Stay warm and someone finds you? Oh my, I just banged him. Maybe about 20 minutes later, my friend who I was staying with realized that I wasn't but there. But you weren't, yeah. <laughs> he found me, but that, yeah, it would be a pretty horrible death to die by way of turkey inventory. Yeah, oh my gosh. Well, I'm glad that you didn't. I'm glad <laughs> that the death threats for, uh, you know, didn't didn't actually uh, <laughs> come yeah. through. Uh, and you didn't ruin anybody's, uh, didn't ruin anybody's Thanksgiving. Well, um, it's been a real pleasure talking yeah. with you, Dan. Thank you so much for um, I would me. encourage everybody to check out happyvalleymeat.com. Uh, you can see all the restaurants where you can uh, enjoy Happy Valley Meat and where you can get the mushroom burgers. Uh, you can follow Happy Valley on Twitter and Instagram at Happy Valley Meat uh, on both of those social media platforms. And if you want to buy 30 pounds of meat, people should just contact you through the site, right? Exactly. Uh, we're meat at happyvalleymeat.com. And if you have questions about mushrooms and meat and whatever, we're, we're more about discourse and conversation than anything else. So even if you don't want to buy meat and just have a question about where meat comes from, we'd love to tell you. Awesome. Thanks so much, Dan. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears today. Big thank you to David Tatashore for engineering this show every week. Don't forget to head over to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and support this and all the other great shows here on HRN. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as all of the other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org, on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please give us a review over on any of those formats. We'd really appreciate it. And follow me on Instagram, at thefoodballer. Talk to you in a few weeks. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. 
Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 